Voices are exotic Dancers enter one by one Make love to all of your orifices In your seduction Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. In this first gospel, entitled The Gospel of David and Emmanuel, we tackle the problems between subjectivity and objectivity as they pertain to morality. The history between these two moral foci is long and includes the writings of thinkers dating all the way back to Plato and perhaps beyond. For our purposes, though, I'm going to be focusing on building a bridge between the two with the goal of demonstrating that in the case of morality, the hard distinction people make between the subjective and the objective is an illusion. Or at least, that we needn't incessantly stop and debate which is of greater importance. In the same way that physics bleeds into chemistry and chemistry bleeds into biology, I will show you how both the subjective and the objective bleeds into each other as we build a complete moral system, which is our goal in the second part of this series, The Bible 5.0, The New Testament. So let's now get into the particulars. First, we need to set the stage. One can get into all manner of mind-bending, uncomfortable headspaces thinking about how the objective and the subjective interact and which is, in fact, more valuable, or which describes reality best. After all, all objective information or data is first filtered through our subjective minds. Minds which we know deceive us to some degree and create or generate reality by filling in the gaps to our perceptions. As an example, consider your blind spot for a moment. Unknown to many, there is a rather large blind spot almost directly in front of both of your eyes. It is offset towards your periphery, but it still causes a gap in perception, which is quite large, nearly right in front of your face. Luckily, your other eye helps to make up for the gap, and your mind fills it in with what it expects to be there. If you want to test this quick, just take a piece of paper and mark it with a dot about the size of a dime. Hold the dot about two feet from your face in your right hand. Close your left eye and put your left index finger two feet straight out in front of the tip of your nose. Stare at your left finger while you move the dot around in front of your right eye until it disappears. The dot should completely disappear when it's roughly five inches to the right of the tip of your finger and just below your eye line. Don't cheat by glancing over at the dot quickly. Marvel at how the dot fully disappears as you move it up and down through your blind spot. It's right in front of your face. In your everyday experience, you hardly ever notice the missing dot. Your other eye still sees it, and your blind eye glances around often to locate whatever might be in the gap. But the gap does exist, and your subjective experience helps to fill it in. So, we know for a fact that your subjective experience is slightly different than the objective world you inhibit. And it gets worse. There are many more examples that I could cite demonstrating the difference between what we perceive to be true and the actual truth of reality. Before we move on to a deeper explanation of our subjective problems, let's quickly set the stage further, this time with the severity of our moral situation. Let's consider our human right to bodily autonomy versus murder. We consider murder immoral because it is the killing of a person, any person, that does not want to die. Why is that immoral, you may be asking? 
It is immoral because we have mountains of evidence to support that humans have a right to bodily autonomy. And the killing of a person violates their bodily autonomy rights in the most permanent and therefore the gravest of ways. So if anything is considered wrong in a sound moral system, murdering human beings is wrong. So what about when we kill the unborn? It seems sound to state that we are justified in killing the unborn when they infringe on our rights to bodily autonomy. And that when we kill the unborn, it is murder because it is very likely that they want to live. And since the unborn inhibit space inside the body of another person, that habitation must be consensual. Therefore, at any time and for any reason, if the mother opts out of this agreement, then the unborn person inside her must die. Unless, of course, there is some way to accomplish both. That is, the right to bodily autonomy for the mother and to avoid the murder of the unborn. We will get into this more later. But for now, let's just assume that the unborn must die to accomplish the mother's goal of claiming her right to bodily autonomy. So the question now must be asked. How is it that by upholding our moral right to bodily autonomy, we must commit the most egregious act against humanity? This exercise bends the mind even more when we consider that both the right to bodily autonomy is sound and murder is the most heinous violation of our right to bodily autonomy and that these two sound statements are predicated on the exact same data. In fact, our understanding of murder doesn't even make sense without the use of our bodily autonomy rights as its foundation. So in order to uphold our most basic right, in this case, we must violate it. And in doing so, we murder the most precious, naive, innocent, and unknowing members of our genus, Homo, the unborn. Once this mind drain is unclogged, the water seems to circle endlessly. You'll find yourself supporting the right to bodily autonomy with sound evidence in one breath, and then immediately running into a dead end when you are forced to reconcile the murder of the unborn with the next breath. And ultimately, it cannot be fully reconciled. When the suffering and flourishing of humanity is your evidence for establishing the right to bodily autonomy, of which there is an inexhaustible amount, and then to uphold that right, you must commit an act that causes suffering of the worst kind, you immediately feel like you cannot win. There is a moral stalemate. We'll resolve this stalemate in a future episode, but for now, let's dwell on this conundrum, for it provides us with the correct amount of discomfort and raises the stakes to where they belong. Morality is a life and death proposition of the highest stakes. This is no joke. So the problem is now understood. The stage is set. We now understand that we are in serious and troubled territory. Can we resolve the notion that morality is subjective? I think that we can and that we must. The first step is to consider the claims of many that morality is wholly subjective. What that means and what moral outcomes we should expect if this claim is true. In an interview I had with Chris Shelton of the Sensibly Speaking podcast in season two of Ear Seduction, episode 22, the position of the subjective moral thinker was flushed out. Sadly for my guest, it didn't go well. What did go exceedingly well was that we successfully identified all the claims subjective moral thinkers make. Subjective morality brings with it many other positions that must be addressed individually, but they all fall under the umbrella of subjectivity and lead us towards moral outcomes that are best avoided. We know they ought to be avoided because of the objective data that we've collected regarding these claims. The claims subjective moral thinkers make are that morality is wholly subjective, that morality is arbitrary, 
that might makes right, that values are subjective, and that harm is subjective. Again, all these aspects of subjective morality are identified in Season 2, Episode 22 of Ear Seduction. Before we provide the correct answers to these moral positions, let's detail them out a little so we fully understand them and the type of moral outcomes they generate. Let's first consider the claim that morality is subjective. Here is a quote from the episode referenced earlier where Chris gives us his definition of morality. Quote, When we are dealing with the subjective assignment of value, of good or bad, to any act or thing, we are talking about morality, unquote. He goes on to state that, quote, The reasoning behind it is there, but it's not the basis of whether you are deciding on right or wrong or good or bad, unquote. So he's now detailed out an account of subjective morality, that it can be decided upon by anyone or any group, and that its decrees have reasons. But those reasons are not the foundation of whether an act is right or wrong, or good or bad. In this episode, he covers a few examples in an attempt to demonstrate that his definition and understanding of morality are correct. Sadly, instead, he just opens the door to the depths of deprivation to which one can sink when they consider morality in this way. At one point, he states that, quote, slavery, it's had its ups and downs, unquote, and then goes on to argue that there could be some form of slavery that we ought to consider moral. Clearly, our moral system has gone off the rails if we're trying to justify slavery. If we try to decouple our morality from the objective and subjective moral facts that we've established in this series, we are very likely to be forced down this path of supporting immoral behavior, as Chris showed us. What Chris demonstrated is that subjective moral systems are incomplete. No one person or group of people can assign the value of good or bad onto any act or thing without first demonstrating that the good or bad have something to do with objective facts of human suffering or thriving. The example Chris used was simple. He gave us a scenario where a mother was deciding how much candy to give her young child. He cited the child's subjective desire to eat candy and the mother's arbitrary assignment of good or bad onto whatever number she decided upon. Set up in this way, Chris failed to grasp perhaps all of the actual moral issues at play. It's worth mentioning here that the amount of candy to give a baby is a fine example for our moral discussion, but it really doesn't capture the severity of how a subjective moral system fails to solve our moral problems. It's much more appropriate to consider something more drastic. Consider for a moment if we apply a subjective moral system, such as the one Chris describes earlier, to the human phenomena of serial murder. Let's now consider the acts of Ted Bundy. If this name is unknown to you, Ted Bundy brutally tortured and killed more than 19 women. In the subjective system described above, Ted Bundy himself has the right to utilize his subjective assessment of his actions to decide if they are good or bad. His reasoning is there, but his reasons are not the final assessment of whether his actions are moral or immoral. This leads us to society's assessment of Ted's actions. In his case, society agreed that what Ted did was immoral and decided to put him to death. But what if society had decided that it was perfectly fine what Ted did? According to the definition of morality provided earlier, they would be able to do so. Again, society could have assigned the value of good onto Ted's actions in the exact same way as Ted himself could have done and did. Where does this leave us? How are we to assess any moral actions when we base our moral system on this subjective foundation? Don't worry, the answers are coming. Our next claim to consider is that morality is arbitrary. 
Here we find ourselves brought out of any moral framework entirely. To say that morality is arbitrary is to say that the person dictating the morality either to themselves or onto others is not engaging in any moral process. They have just decided that an act is immoral. Full stop. Again, if we set this statement within the moral foundation described by Chris earlier, it's the subjective assignment of the value of good or bad onto an action or thing. That assignment of value, according to this subjective moral foundation, can be and often is completely arbitrary. To elaborate on the principle of arbitrary morality, Chris provides the following example. Each and every Halloween, children collect large amounts of candy, and their parents arbitrarily decide on how much candy each child may eat in one sitting. Chris states it like this on the show, quote, Is it right to let a child have six pieces of candy in one sitting? Absolutely not. Why not? Because he can only have five pieces of candy, unquote. When I pushed back against this moral argument, Chris has a moment of clarity stating, quote, I didn't say it was a high quality argument, but it is an argument, unquote, which is an interesting admission. This arbitrary assignment of moral good or bad onto the number of candy a child can eat takes the moral arbiter completely out of any useful moral framework. With this expression of moral subjectivity, nothing of any moral significance is being weighed not the well-being of the child, or the parent, or anyone. As stated by Chris, the only justification given here is, quote, because, unquote. Thinking of morality in this way, that it can be dictated on to others without any thought of either thriving or flourishing, transitions us nicely to the next claim subjective moral thinkers make, that might makes right. In the episode, Chris states this slightly differently as, quote, it's made right, unquote. This was stated during an example Chris brought up to me to show how his moral position, that morality is subjective and completely arbitrary, could be correct in the context of an ancient civilization. He described a society where the entire culture was built upon warring with another culture. As part of the understanding struck between the two cultures, the practice of taking slaves was introduced. The slaves were the prisoners of war, and their slavery was proposed as an alternative to genocide. He then told me that everyone agreed to this in both cultures. Thus, it was made right. So if we are to take this as true, we are now to believe that a just and moral society can incorporate slavery into its social systems and that everyone agreed to this system. One can't help but ask the obvious question. Once the slaves were enslaved, did anyone ask them if they still agreed to this system? Or perhaps a better question, was there any evidence collected from the slaves, in the form of human data sets, to suggest that these slaves were suffering as a result of their slavery? Here, we have a very clear case of one group of people imposing morality onto another group of people. It's this context that most modern moral thinkers, in this case Chris, attempt to justify immoral social contracts like slavery. Chris stated that slavery was made right by the citizens who agreed to it, and this included the slaves. So here again, we are to believe that in this case, and any case like it, slavery is a moral good. And in this example, it was made right by the people within the society who agreed to it. Never mind what the slaves thought after the fact. Here we have a subjective moral conclusion that one can draw if we believe that morality is both arbitrary 
and subjective. The conclusion that might makes right. While it would be foolish to argue that there are not people that believe this way, clearly there are, it may be beneficial to question this moral proposition. Perhaps one could cite the human data set I referenced earlier to determine if this moral position ought to be believed. This leads us into the next claim nicely, that values are subjective. Why should we value life? This is a question that people sometimes ask me, usually in response to a moral statement like, life is preferable to death. Most people believe that values are completely unique to each individual, and that this means that values are also completely subjective. In order to fully understand this claim, let's consider murder yet again. To refresh your memory, murder is the killing of anyone who does not want to die. Murderers clearly don't value life in the same way that morally normal people do, except for when their lives are on the line. It should be no surprise that murderers do not want to be killed. They don't want to be murdered. So the value they put on life is offered to themselves, but not to others. And so goes the nature of subjective values. This tenet of a wholly subjective moral system leads one to ask many questions, the least of which is, does the value a murderer puts on the lives of others in any way affect how their acts of murder cause pain and suffering to those that they murder? What about the society in which they find themselves at large, murdering whenever they feel the urge? Does the murderer's value that they place on life in any way change the objective facts that their murders produce? Clearly, these questions need answering, and sadly, a wholly subjective moral system fails to provide us with any answers. According to the subjective morality proposed by so many, the murderer simply has different values than other people. Not right or wrong, just different. Now, society could subjectively assign the value of good or bad to the murderer's actions, but the murderer could do the same and cite the same subjective moral system to support their claims. This notion that values are subjective and that a wholly subjective moral system is the only moral system available to us doesn't provide us with any moral direction. Even more problematic, the subjective moral system where people assign value as they see fit doesn't have any evidence to demonstrate that the outcomes or the foundation itself is in fact moral. So we find ourselves lost, morally speaking, with only our subjective thoughts to guide us. We are left with two blind spots right in front of our faces and no evidence to help us understand where they are and to what exactly we are blind. This brings us to our final claim, that harm is subjective. If the subjective morality folks are correct, then there must be some clear distinctions to be made in this claim. According to them, harm or pain or suffering could be desired, meaning that, they are, that there are some that would want to feel pain or experience harm. My guest brought up BDSM as an example, but how useful is this moral proclamation when we are deciding how to behave towards a group of people or humanity as a whole? While it is true that there are those that seek pain as a path to pleasure, as in the practitioners of BDSM, does this fact in any way change the pain experienced? Does it change the more general notion that those that experience pain are actually suffering? Do the very few that enjoy pain really change our moral prescriptions as they pertain to society, to humanity, or even to the individual? After all, those that enjoy pain generally only do so under very strict and controlled circumstances, while those that claim that harm is subjective point to practices like BDSM as an example that supports their claim, they fail to answer any of these other questions with their subjective moral framework. 
They believe that because there are some that enjoy pain under very specific circumstances, that this means that pain and therefore harm are subjective. They also believe that not only is harm up to the person being harmed, but that harm can be subjectively dictated by the person inflicting the harm and for the reasons we discussed earlier. Ultimately, this account of subjective morality, that there are those that enjoy pain and thus redefine harm, leads one down the path of moral fatalism. The conclusion is drawn that because we cannot get a 100% moral consensus of what causes harm, then we cannot make any moral pronouncements. Basically, we are left without any ability to navigate moral issues, questions, quandaries, and most of all, we cannot make any moral conclusions. Again, actions are made right, only this time by the person being harmed. There is quite a bit of nuance in this last statement that we will cover in the next episode. But for now, know that the person that believes that morality is wholly subjective just ends the conversation there without considering any of this nuance. So this wraps up the positions of the subjective moralists. It's hard not to agree with some of what they say and, at the same time, feel intensely dissatisfied with their claims. There is, after all, no moral direction provided in their subjective moral system. In the next episode, we will offer the solution to these problems. One by one, we will dismantle these claims and demonstrate what the subjectivists got right and what they are missing that makes them so wrong. Please tune in and thank you. This has been Ear Seduction. <laughs>